Well, it's wonderful to be with you guys tonight. Um, Father Brian, as he was heading to his retreat, um, called me, hey, can you fill in? Last minute, sorry. Um, I've, never, uh, I've never taught this to, uh, tonight, but uh, I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. So um, it really is a, a tremendous blessing being with you guys tonight and uh, really grateful. So hopefully um, we'll get a chance to, I'll, I'll give you some thoughts about, um, I think he said creation, the fall, and the promise of redemption. Um, or at least that's what I kind of remember. Um, so we'll, we'll try to hit those. Those are extremely enormous topics, and we could spend years uh, just unpacking them. But we'll try to do that maybe in, I don't know how long. Does he speak like for an hour and do Q&A or something like that, or how does this work? Usually talks the whole time. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> well, very good. Well, so I feel free if a question comes up. Um, I'm okay to field questions as we go through. Um, so let's go ahead and begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mighty and eternal Father, our hearts rejoice in the gift of your love. The amazing mystery that uh, you have desired and willed to create us, uh, that we might exist and have life. We ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Redeemer and our Savior, that you might send forth your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our minds, to set our hearts at peace and rest in you, to be able to know your love, uh, the great mystery of the way you've created us, uh, the tragic catastrophe of our turning from you, but how you've continued to chase after us to draw us back to yourself. And so, Lord, anoint our time together. And we pray, too, for Father Brian on his retreat that he might be extremely blessed we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so... Um, all right. Well, so tonight, um, first of all, my name is Father Brady Wagner. I'm a, uh, one of Father Brian's brother companions, uh, the Companions of Christ. And I know that Father Mike... Uh, Father Michael Rapp is, he just moved into the rectory, so um, he's another brother companion. He's back from Rome. He's been studying in Rome for the past six years, uh, scripture, and so he should be the one teaching this tonight, but, um, but I am, and, uh, and so I don't know, maybe I'll throw out some Hebrew words just to make him proud of me. Um, okay, so tonight, what do we get a chance to do is really getting a chance to, to take a step back. I think last week he said he talked about the, the act of faith. Um, and this week, just starting to dive in and trying to understand who God is and how he's revealed himself. Uh, I think that's one of the most uh, important questions. I think by the very fact of existence, we can know with certitude, through reason alone, that God exists. Um, we have many convincing and converging arguments that the Catechism says. There's not one singular proof, but there are so many signs pointing towards there's got to be a God that doesn't make sense otherwise. But God doesn't come in a way that is just kind of like a logical, uh, uh, certain proof uh, in order to preserve, in some measure, our freedom that he wants our freedom to really seek after him and to choose him. And he's hidden himself enough that if we don't want to find him, we won't. And that's why consistently in Scripture, he says, seek my face. Like in Psalm 27, 
my heart says, seek your face, O Lord. Your face I do seek. Hide, your not, hide not your face from me. And so really longing for that, uh, really desiring that the Lord might make himself known. And so the question is, has the absolute, the eternal, transcendent God spoken? Has he revealed himself? Well, I think in f- the first thing we can say is the, the first way of revelation is actually the fact that things exist, you know, in the way that you can look at the, the work of an artist, and you can know something about the artist. You might not know very much about him but, or her, but you know something, that they're particularly interested in this uh, subject, whatever they're painting. They might like that. They have a certain style, maybe a schooling of their uh, type of artistry or something like that. So you can kind of know things about uh, based on uh, what they've made. So the first book of Revelation, we say, is actually creation itself. And we can consider, reflect upon, and wonder about creation. And now what's so sad is, I was just um, up in Grand Lake over the weekend and I was in a place out in the woods, and there was really almost no light pollution whatsoever. And you know what you get to see when there's no light pollution, just the brilliance of stars. Uh, a couple nights ago, I went, uh, uh, I went for a run, and, uh, and I looked up, and this was in the city, and I looked up, <laughs> I could see, I could certainly see the moon, which was great, but I couldn't see, I could see like one or two stars. And how sad it is we live in this light-polluted world. Now, okay, don't take that too far, but like uh, that we can't literally wonder, consider, ponder that we live in a world that is so fascinatingly small and we can forget uh, that I'm not the center of the universe, which is hard to forget sometimes. And literally, the word consider itself, consider, considera, it comes from the Latin, which means with the stars, considera, with the stars. And so what I get a chance to do is I get a chance to uh, imagine myself up with the stars and even like looking back down upon the world in an imaginative way and just considering, pondering, what is life about? Why is my life this way? Uh, Why is it that, that things are... Uh, created or ordered or structured in this particular way? Why are there, why are there laws um, in the natural world? Are there laws in the spiritual world? Is there such thing as the spiritual life? And this really is the birth of philosophy. Uh, philosophy is just the love of wisdom. As we consider and ponder and reflect upon the created things, created world, and that's why it's so great to be Catholic because we love all things uh, created and um, revealed by God. Um, so I think what's really, really blessed is, um, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and praise God, I'm super grateful for that. Um, is it I never had to wrestle with the question, is it science or is it faith? I never had to wrestle with that question. Now sadly, I, I, I was talking to someone the other day and it just, my jaw dropped to the floor. I, okay, by the way, I, I work in the seminary. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm not in the front lines in the parish anymore. Um, and so I, I've been in seminary for a little over two years now. And so the conversations that I have with these guys 
are generally, there's a lot of things presupposed. I don't do a lot of apologetics anymore because <laughs> um, I'm not just out with people. I, I, these guys are living a really str- uh, strong prayer life. They're really giving their hearts to the Lord, uh, desiring to be his priests and all that. And so I was talking with someone, and they, um, they, were, they, they couldn't believe it that, that that dichotomy wasn't real, that it's either... It's either you believe in God or it's science. And that's just, that's just a tragic dichotomy. And I don't know if Father Brian mentioned this last week. He might have mentioned it based on the act of faith and reason and all that. Um, but what we get to do, I think, is really ponder tonight uh, creation itself and, and to be able to celebrate that fact in an astonishing and awe-filled way. Truly. Truly all filled. Okay. So in the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God bara, uh, Elohim bara, uh, literally, which is creating from nothing. That's the, the Hebrew word. Um, and, and it's fascinating to reflect on the story of creation in this unique way in Genesis because it's different from other creation narratives. There's something unique about this. So as God is creating the world, he's revealing something about himself, but now we have God revealing himself in a particular way in history through scripture, through events. Um, and he's trying to reveal himself to us so that we might know him. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, at, at the very beginning of Summa, Summa Theologica, um, have you ever heard of that? It's, the, it's, it's actually, the, the Summa is for beginners. Um, enjoy that. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever read it. It's, uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's basically, it's uh, three huge, thick volumes. And uh, his very first question, actually, and the article in that question is, is philosophy enough? Do we really need revelation? Do we need revealed doctrine? And he says, yes, we do. Philosophy isn't enough because of God's desire. And we can know that God exists, and we can know many things about him, but it would only be known to a few, and after a very long time, and with the admixture of error, he says. And so because of God's gracious mercy and his deep love for us, he wants us to know him. So he reveals himself in the world and history. Thus we get religion. How God reveals himself to us and how is it that we come to understand him, receive the gift of his love, and respond to him. This is the Catholic faith. This is simply, in a nutshell, what it is. So God is beginning to reveal himself in Scripture, in history, and it, as these guys are pondering, by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pondering about how God has acted in the world, um, this is what they come to articulate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Okay? Now, this is very uh, sad and tragic situation. There's literally nothing there. So if, if there's no form, uh, there's no structure to the world, and it's void, it's empty, 
What does that mean? And there's darkness, there's chaos upon the face of the deep. Um, what does that mean to you? What do you think of? What is that trying to articulate in, in, uh, in Hebraic language? In the beginning there was nothing. <laughs> nothing was there. It was formless. It was void. There was no structure. There was nothing filling it. And so um, what we see then is in the entire uh, creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1 is, is God's answer to that uh, problem, that there was nothing there. Yeah. So it just says darkness is on the face of the deep. And so chaos probably isn't the best word for it in English. Um, so darkness is the absence of light. So that's probably a better way to say it. Um, so I, I should just stay with scripture, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, so uh, we have, uh, have that the, the, there is nothing there. But God exists as the eternal God. He is, period. He is the act of existence. He just is. And this can be a little bit difficult to try to understand, especially when you try to articulate that to little ones. Um, uh, so who created God? Well, no, he just, he exists, he is. Um, but God is perfect in himself, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. I don't know if Father Brian, ever, uh, did he ever quote the first uh, paragraph of the catechism to you? The first three paragraphs are extraordinary. Do you, do you guys ever read the catechism? Have you ever read the catechism? Oh man, you've got to pick it up. This is a, this is a tremendous gift of the church. And this was uh, written and promulgated in 1993. And, uh, and this really is uh, a, a profound gift in the articulation of our faith. I know it looks a little bit thick and kind of intimidating, but it, it really is incredible. Let me just read to you uh, the first paragraph. God infinitely perfect. Oh, yeah. So the catechism, so, so basically throughout the history of the church, the, the church has put together a catechism trying to articulate uh, the deposit of the faith. What are the essentials about the mystery of living uh, and under, understanding, receiving, and living the faith of being Catholic? So throughout the history of the church, most of the time it happens in, the, in response to difficulties in the church, heresies that happen. Uh, there's a certain corrective and an explanation and an articulation of the faith in a certain way. So um, this actually, um, it's, it's beautiful, I think, in many ways, because it's not really kind of a reactionary catechism. It's just a, a simple articulation of the faith. And it does so in four different parts. Yeah. Am I even coming close to what you're... middle school teacher. I was trying to analyze. So it's like the Bible is like the manual to drive a car, and the catechism is the history of automobiles? Um... Yeah, so, so basically the catechism is a distillation of, of the entirety of the faith that comes from Scripture. Like for um, there's a ton of Scripture in here. Um, and, and then it, there's a lot of teachings of the fathers, and um, especially in the Second Vatican Council, uh, it really articulates and sums up the, the development of what this is, how God has acted in the world. Um, it, it's... Uh, and it really, so basically it's uh, articulated in four dimensions, four pillars. The first pillar is, um, is the faith itself through the creed, our baptismal creed. That's the very first thing that we come to understand. And if this is RCIA, that's actually what you're preparing to enter into, is that you're going to profess 
I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the church. And so those are the, the articles of faith that we completely give ourselves over to. So that's the first one, how God has revealed himself and who is God. The second one, and how he's acted in the world. And yeah, the second one is how do we enter into and experience more deeply the mystery of God's relationship with us, which is actually through the sacraments, baptism. When we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden I'm literally baptizo. I'm immersed in God himself. That's extraordinary. I become a partaker of the divine nature. Now that's an awesome mystery is that I'm plunged into the very dynamism of God who is Trinity. He's not just one God. He's actually a dynamism of love. God is love. The Father loves the Son. The Son receives that, gives himself completely back. And that love is so rich and powerful that's the Holy Spirit. And I live now a spiritual life. Okay, so now once I'm in the life of grace and in the dynamism of God's own love, I become a partaker in his divine nature. Now how is it that I'm supposed to live in my life? So that third pillar of the catechism is, this, uh, is the moral life. Uh, if, if this is the way God has loved me, how do I respond to that? What makes sense in the mystery of the way God has loved me? Like when I look at, there's no crucifix here. <laughs> oh, yeah, when I look at that, does my life make sense when I look at that, the way that I live it? Does my life make sense when I look at the way that he's poured out his heart for, um, in order to, to, to give me life? Um, so that's, the, uh, that's the, the third part, is the moral life. And it's presupposed by grace, the grace of the sacraments. And so then finally the fourth part is the mystical life, a life of prayer. So what does it look like? You know, I, I lived in Boulder for seven years of my life, and... Uh, and they loved the mystical life, but they'd never, they had already written off that Christianity has no such thing as mysticism about it, which is really sad um, that many people just chased after Eastern mysticism, um, thinking that Christianity was just a, um, I don't know, uh, a body of ethical teaching or something like that. And arbitrary laws just to make people feel guilty or whatever, uh, but to actually have a deep experience of the mystical life, the spiritual life. So that's the fourth, fourth pillar, is life of prayer. Um, so uh, basically, uh, what you can do is you can go back through, and tonight just um, you can read through the chapter or the paragraphs on um, uh, the, the beginning paragraphs on, on creation um, and the fall. Um, they're, they're deeply powerful. Um, anyway, so that was a long a side note. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so this is, this is just simply um, articulating the big picture here from the very first paragraph. God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, which means he has no need for anything at all. He is completely... This is, a sad, uh, this is a bad way to say it, but completely uh, sufficient and content with himself. There's nothing that he needs. Um, but he ends up in a plan of sheer goodness, freely creating man. Why? To make him share in his own blessed life. God doesn't need anything. But because goodness itself and love is diffusive of itself, we could say, he wants us to be. 
He wants to create. Why? So that we might share in his own happiness, in his own experience of love. Uh, he wants us to, to not just exist, but to be able to experience the joy that he has in himself as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit live in that rich, rich life of love. For this reason, at every time and every place, God draws close to man. Notice it's this. God is drawing close to man. Oftentimes we, we, we think that we are the ones that have to go seek out God and climb this mountain and reach the heavens. Wrong. That's not what we believe as Catholics. The radical thing, the radical Christian claim is not that we go and search for God, is that God has already found us. And so even though I might, and you know, the Lord actually calls us to seek his face, right? But the odd thing is, is that when I seek him, I realize I've already first been found by him. Now that is a paradox that's going to blow your mind, and you're only going to understand that when you experience it. Okay, so God is drawing close to man. It's the incarnation. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. That he wants us to be a part of a family. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son as redeemer and savior. In his Son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. Now, he continues, to, so the catechism continues to go on in the next couple paragraphs, which are powerful. So, I mean, if you read those three paragraphs and you, and you just constantly meditate, you can meditate on those for the rest of your lives, and you'll never get to the bottom of those. Um, so, basically, what God is doing here is that he's totally sufficient unto himself, he needs nothing. But he, out of his own uh, love and a, a plan of sheer goodness, he wants us to exist. And so he creates the world. He creates all the universe, whatever, I don't know, 13.8 billion years ago. Um, well, uh, people can argue that. Um, but uh, he creates all the universe, and he creates it ex nihilo. Do you guys know what that means? You ever heard of that phrase, ex nihilo? It's a Latin phrase that literally means out of nothing, from nothing. So it's not like the many creation narratives that are going on at the time, which generally have some sense of a, a violent act that, you know, like the Babylonian narrative of, uh, of the beginning of the cosmos. Marduk, this god of light, ends up slaying this primordial dragon and, uh, and cutting it in two, it becomes the heavens and the earth and out of the blood of the dragon, humans are made and that's why the humans have such a sinister part of them is because it's, <laughs> we've been made from the blood of dragons. You know, it's like, okay, there's a lot of creation narratives out there that have a, a violent, a, a violent um, beginning to them. Now notice how radically different this is. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. How did God create the world? Was it some kind of like, I don't know, um, primeval event where, where God did something that uh, was violent and ended up you know, slicing up some stuff and out of the parts he was able to form and fashion things. He just spoke and it came to be. He commanded, it sprang into being as the psalmist says in Psalm 33. He spoke. Now think about that. 
There's a, there's a lot of things that we can, uh, corollaries that we can take from that. But first is, it's not a violent act that God creates simply out of the fullness of his being, out of the abundance of the, as Jesus says in the gospel, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? What does that mean about the heart of God? Out of his abundance, he desires to create so that we might share in his own blessed life. He says, let there be light, and boom, there was light. Now, I think, first of all, we can say, um, uh, man, I gotta be, um, be careful in what, how I say things. <laughs> that God has somehow given me a, a participation in his language. That, that I need to be attentive. You know, I don't know if you remember this, like there's a playground out there. He, like when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Well, we would hope so, but that's precisely what gets to the heart of things. That a word can create, it can give life, it can encourage in a way that um, edifies the soul even far more deeply than, than uh, nourishment can be given to the body. Um, but it can also strike to the core in terms of uh, destroying. And so when we think about the difference between a blessing and a curse, literally it's a benedictio or maledictio. It's a good word or it's an evil word. <laughs> a blessing is a good word spoken because it's a participation in God's own creative life, God's own creative act. And we'll see this more and more is that God wants us to be partakers cooperators, uh, co-workers in this plan of his creation. Okay. So then, uh, God saw that the light was good. Now, what is it about creation that is fundamental? That God is good, and he creates things that are good. Creation is good. Now, that's extremely important. So then he goes on and he ends up, these first three days, um, the first day he creates light and he separates the light from the darkness. So what do we see there? If it was formless, he's starting to form things. He's starting to form it by separating the light and the darkness. Now some have articulated this in the way of the fall of the angels and the separation of, of the good angels and the bad angels from those who are in concert with the Lord and in service, and those who have rebelled against him, uh, like Satan, the father of lies, a liar, from, murderer from the beginning, the devil, the ancient dragon. Um, he was a created, a created uh, angelic creature, uh, one of the highest, a ser uh, seraphic angel, but, uh, but he fell. So he's, even though he's extremely powerful, he's not even close to God. Um, and so... We can get more into that after the fall. Okay, so he's starting to form it, uh, separating light and darkness. So then God said uh, on the second day, uh, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it separate from, waters, uh, from the waters. So basically what he's doing is he's, again, forming it, giving it structure. So if we separate the light from the day, <coughs> excuse me, the light and the darkness, uh, he's also now separating the waters above from the waters below. Um, basically, um, 
giving it, uh, yeah, form. Uh, so the waters of the heavens and the waters of the sea, essentially. What, is, what does that mean, literally? Is there, is there waters above? Yeah, I mean, just uh, that's where the rains come. Is there a firmament? Uh, yeah, that's what it says, uh, firmament. And um, trying to articulate this, I, basically, the, what these guys are not trying to do is not trying to give a scientific explanation of the origin of the universe. They're trying to articulate the deeper meanings of why God created the world and some articulations about it. Um, but I think this is where, you know, St. Augustine, even a, as a, a fourth century father, um, this is back in the, in the fourth century, he gives his literal interpretation of Genesis. And what he is clear about is we're not fundamentalists. <laughs> and fundamentalists didn't even exist yet, but he's saying this is not how we read the scripture. We read the scripture in a literal way according to the intention of the author. That that's the point. Is it what is the author intending to do? What is he intending to articulate? So, um, so there is embedded, maybe in God's wisdom, uh, some aspects of the scientific world. But, um, but if you think about trying to get into the mind of someone who lived three millennia ago, how do they see the world? And how do they tell history? They tell it differently than what we would do, not like a police report. Uh, we tell history differently than the way they did then. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, um, there's wrong history. Um, but uh, um, so when you look up at the sky and you see blue in the sky um, and you see blue in the waters below, you can see that there's a separation there. And he's trying to articulate that God is setting form to this. Because remember, it was formless at the beginning, and then void. I don't know if that gets to your question. Is that no? What, so no, it just—it's confusing. Why would I mean? Did God inspire this writing? Yeah. So why is it so confusing? Why would why would He say something? There's no firmament. There's no waters in the heavens. Well, I mean, basically, what you would say is, as you're standing there, and you sit, gaze upon. Uh, the, the heavens above, which would include, I mean, that's where the rains fall. Now, these guys don't have um, atmospheric uh, instruments, but they know that rain falls from the sky. And, um, and so, just simply trying to articulate that God is separating them somehow mysteriously from the waters above to the waters below. Um, and, um, I mean, I don't know how to, how to say it better than that. Um, yeah. And there, I, yeah. Can you speak more on about God's love to create us? And what I mean is, Father Brian talked previously, we talking about free will, and taking a, an agnostic or an atheist view, that to have love, you have to have free will. I completely agree with that. But can, can you say, you have to have suffering to have love, right? So he's, Talking about creationism, God wants to share in love. Mm -hmm. Nothing less, there's no suffering, there's no love. So does that I don't know. Uh, human creatures, when free will comes on the scene, um, then we can talk about 
what does it mean then to participate in the mystery of love? Um, okay, so real quick, I'll skip over the, the rest of this because, um, uh, um, yeah, we'll get to the good stuff. Um, not that this is bad, but okay. So basically what he's doing, the first three days, he's actually separating, putting form to the world. And then the next three days, he's actually filling it. That which is void, he's filling it with life. And so the first three days, you can see that he's separating light and the darkness, the firmament, uh, uh, the waters above and the waters below. Um, and then he ends up uh, the splitting or forming the separation between the land and the sea. And then now he starts to fill it. So what does he do in the sky above? He has uh, uh, the, the moon and the stars at night filling the sky and the sun during the day. So, and, then, um, and then he has uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea filling it with life. And then finally, um, all the, the, the sea creatures and, and then the, the land animals and the vegetation and all that. And finally, on the sixth day, uh, he makes man and woman. Makes man in his image, I should say. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let it have dominion over the fish of the sea and all the rest. And so he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This threefold um, blessing of creation is just seeing that this is kind of the height of the material world that he's created. Um, okay. So what is this? And so at the end of... Um, at the end of every day, at the end of what he's created, and he says, let there be light, there is light. And, and he saw that the light was good. And he sees that everything that he creates is good. And, uh, and then eventually when he creates humanity, man, Adam, uh, he, he makes, um, and, and then he says, he looks and beholds and he sees everything and it is very good. And so we can see that, that creation itself is, is, is good, but then all of a sudden there's this stark line, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And this is where I think love really starts to come, become manifest. And what, is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That man is made male and female, that humanity Maybe I should just use the word humanity. When I say man, I mean humankind um, is made male and female. That we're certainly made in the image of God personally because I have the capacity to understand the world. God has created it in such a way that it's intelligible, it's ordered, uh, it's logical literally according to the logos or the word. Um, but uh, I have the capacity to understand it and to know truth. And then, he's also given me some mysterious power or faculty that I have free will, I have freedom. And I can choose to live in accordance with the truth of things, of reality, of the laws, the way that God has structured the world. I can live in accordance with it in order that I can know him more and be in a deeper relationship and then, uh, above all, love him. Uh, and so that my will is attracted by the beauty of who God is and all that he's created, and now I can love him. Uh, but we know that there is a certain risk that comes with freedom, um, that I might actually not choose to love. 
And this is uh, the tragedy which we call sin. Um, so uh, God creates us, and he puts us in this garden. And obviously, this is a, this is a, a story to try to understand how, um, how God has presented us the option Will we love and receive life in all of creation as a gift from God? Or are we going to distrust him, grow suspicious of him, doubt his goodness, question whether or not he's a good father, and then say, I don't want any part of that. So he places, with, places us in the garden. And from the dust of the earth, he, he well, sorry, maybe I should say this. In the, the second creation account, he kind of zooms in on kind of the more phenomenological, and this I think is nearly as to your question. This is kind of the more phenomenological approach of trying to understand this mystery of creation. This is the good stuff of love. Um, and so this is the deeply personal account. It kind of zooms in on male and female and how God has created us in a more un- unique and, and, and personal way. So he forms us from the dust of the earth and then he breathes a living soul within us. So we are kind of this weird mix this fascinating composite of matter and spirit. Um, And he's then given us a certain authority of all the world, but to do what? To till it and to keep it. He wants us to to help him bring life to the world, to till it, to to, um, be like a farmer, you know, um, that we understand the world and its creation and we want to work with God to bring about fruitfulness in the world um, and to keep it, uh, which means um, to shamar or to, um, to, uh, to guard it, to protect it. Um, and so he puts in the middle of the garden a, two trees, a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whatever you want to say about uh, what they were, uh, it's simply this, uh, an image of the choice. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this is where the drama ends up happening, is what are we going to choose? Yeah, okay. We'll skip that stuff. Um, so then, we'll, let's go to Genesis chapter 3 then. Um, now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. Okay, so there are other creatures, these angelic beings, that they had fallen. Some, some had fallen uh, before the creation of us. And uh, these angels are supposed to actually help us in uh, drawing us closer uh, to the Lord and leading us to him. But there, uh, there was a rebellion there, and they themselves, and I think we can see the heart of, of Satan here and the serpent or the ancient dragon, the Nahash, um, is that he actually has a profound distrust and envy and a real hatred for God. Uh, basically, uh, how do I say it? He's pissed that he's not him. He is an incapacity to receive the gift of his own life as a gift from God. And he's upset, resentful, and furious that God has made him the way that he is. Maybe we could say he hates his poverty. He hates that he's not God. So then he comes into the garden 
and being a father of lies, um, as he's rejected God, his heart has no capacity, maybe we can call it his heart, he has no capacity to really understand truth in the way that God has created the world as truth. And he's suspicious, doubtful, and selfish. He's completely turned in on himself, like Curvatus and say, as Augustine would say, that, that he comes in and he ends up approaching Eve, the woman. Did God say you shall not eat of the fruit uh, oh, so sorry. He said, "Did God say you shall not eat of the tree or of any tree in the garden?" Now, what did God say? He said, "You can eat of any of the fruit of the trees of the garden, just that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have any of them. Enjoy it. Live life. You're just you play. You're my children." Um, and He has such delight in that. But there is a capacity for us to abuse our freedom and choose evil. And that's what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is about. So then he comes and approaches Eve and says, did God say you can't even eat through the trees of the garden? Now Eve actually comes to God's defense here, but he has her right where he wants her to engage her in conversation. And he says, and so she says, no, 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 you got it wrong. It's just that one. And then he says, exactly. You know why? Because he knows that if you eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree, you're going to become like him. Do you realize what he's doing? He's trying to keep something from you. Sowing seeds of suspicion in their heart. Is, is he right? I mean, he's always been so good to us. I mean, may, I don't know, maybe. Like, why would he, why would he say that we can't eat of the fruit of that tree? And then they look at the fruit and they see that it's good, uh, it's uh, good for food, pleasing to the eyes, desire to make one wise. So Eve takes the fruit of that tree and gives some to her husband. And her husband there the whole time, what was he supposed to do? He's supposed to guard the garden. Adam, why did you let this serpent come in and start talking to your bride? Why didn't you stand in the middle and say, no, 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 you don't talk to her, you talk to me. And this serpent, by the way, is not just like this little garter snake. This is uh, Nahash. I mean, this is a, in the Hebrew, like a, a Leviathan, an ancient dragon. And so I don't know about you guys, but I probably would have been pretty horrified. There was, my life would be at stake if I stand in the middle there. Like, he's going to be very intimidating. So the question is, am I going to suffer? Am I going to risk my life in order to protect someone whom I love? I mean, this is one whom he loves. Trust me. I don't know. The one thing that I skipped over, which is actually pretty fascinating, is that it is not good that man should be alone. Let's go back then. Um, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for you. So what does God do? Do you remember what he does? Not quite. He actually starts creating... All the, the, the animals, <laughs> all the animals, and then has this huge parade go before Adam, and he has Adam name all the animals. I mean, God, what are you doing there? Did you just totally shank that? I mean, like, imagine Adam there, and he, God is making a helper. He said, I'm going to make a helper fit for you. So he creates all the animals, and all these animals are passing by, and what is happening in Adam? Every time he sees one, he names it, 
He understands it from within in this contemplative receptivity. He names it and realizes this one is not fit for my love. This one can't reciprocate my love. If I try to make a gift of myself, it can't receive it in the way that God has designed me to make a gift of myself. And how, how disappointing that must be. Every single one. And yet, at that, that, that original solitude, man, uh, Adam is starting to understand, man, in general, humankind, uh, is starting to understand that, uh, that I'm different from the animals. There's something mysterious here that makes me different. And only then, as his heart is stretched in longing and his understanding that I'm different from the rest of creation, does he put Adam in a deep sleep and then out of his rib, he fashions Eve. And then when he wakes up, at last, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which is a marital, spousal uh, exclamation. Um, and so he... Um, he has this profound experience of, of tremendous love. And yet, he, out of, you know, this is a bit of speculation, but I think it makes sense, is that Adam is not just off in the garden, you know, chopping wood or whatever. He's right there within arm's length of Eve, and he does not intervene. He's unwilling to actually take a risk and say, no, 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 I'm going to sacrifice myself, and I don't want you to go after her. So I think that even then, uh, we could say that there is um, a risk of suffering. And I wonder if Adam actually had that real intimidation there. Um, yeah. When you were talking about um, solitude and us being alone, um, it's just weird to me because so if we're made in God's image, why don't we have a trinitary Trinity nature so that we don't feel alone, so that we have... Yeah. So that's actually precisely the point, that uh, we come to understand ourselves as persons. We have a unique individuality. We have an intellect and a will. But we, under, we come to realize that I don't make sense by myself, just as the Father doesn't make sense without a son. Um, so it actually is. And so the being made in the image of God isn't just in terms of me as a unique individual and person. It's actually that he's made us male and female. And that, that communion of persons from the very beginning. So, I mean, I think you're hitting it right on the head. That communion of persons is actually uh, profound uh, charity that is life-giving. And that's who God is. God is love, a fruitful love. Maybe we could say, now don't take this analogy too far, but, but the, the, the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the love of the Father and the Son. That, that we could say the Trinity is the family, um, is, is family itself, uh, and from which all family we come to understand. So we're made in his image, not him in our image. So we've got to be careful with that. But, um, but I think that's one of the more powerful insights, and John Paul II has really filled that out a lot in his Theology of the Body, that, that we image God not so much, certainly, in our 
individuality, by our intellect and will, but, but even more so profoundly in the fact that we're oriented towards a communion of persons. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And can I ask a follow-up yeah. question then? When the priests and everything are meant to be celibate, then mm-hmm. you don't get that female. How yeah. does that affect you? Yeah, so it, this comes after Jesus. And this is only in the economy of Jesus at the end. So she asked the question about, um, uh, well, okay, why celibacy? Where does celibacy fit in if it's not good that man should be alone? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, in the end, it's only because we come to understand that marriage is a sacrament, which is to reveal the mystery of Christ's love for his church, God's love for humanity, and how that's fulfilled in Jesus as he gives himself completely to his bride on the cross. And in mass, actually, that's what happens. The two become one flesh. I mean, that's extraordinary. That the two become one flesh. That when we receive Jesus, we receive our beloved bridegroom, and we become one flesh. And, and as his bride, the church, we become filled with his life. Um, and, uh, and so we see then that this is a... So we don't see it in the end. It wasn't really a part of the beginning. It wasn't... Uh, it's only later in the end do we see that marriage is actually a sacrament, a sign revealing the great mystery, which St. Paul says is marriage of Christ and the church. What we do, those who have been called to a celibate life and given that charism, is we actually skip the sign. We skip the sacrament in order to embrace the reality, which is what eternal life is going to be. Eternal life is, is the marriage between God and his people between Christ and the church. And so we embody within ourselves by the charism. This is a gift from God. This is something we choose for ourselves. But um, I mean, obviously we choose it and receive it. Um, but in Matthew 19, uh, Jesus says, if anyone, if this gift is given, he ought to receive it because this is a profound gift. Um, so we skip the sign and, and go straight to the reality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's in First John. <laughs> yeah, the first letter of St. John. God is love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are, you, are you talking about like the, the Old Testament part of the Bible? Yeah. And sometimes, sadly, people, people uh, pit, quote, unquote, the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament, which is complete garbage. But that's, that, that, um, that accusation has been there since the beginning. Um, Marcionism is that heresy. Um, and so, but that's a long story. First, I apologize for my ignorance. My Old Testament's pretty rusty. I mean, my New Testament's rusty too. Can you speak <laughs> on the context of Adam and Eve as a parable or story? That's question one. Or as a reality. And then question two is, how was the stories in the Old Testament, and again, this is my ignorance, so it's probably helpful for me and a few others. How is that information? Yeah, so, okay. How about we just do that? Um, all right. Sorry? Oh, he doesn't? Okay. All right, so basically what we got now, um, we have, uh, yeah. So we have, okay, this is the creation of the world. This is, okay, this we are here. This is where we are. <laughs> so we got Jesus. 
Uh, this, this, by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen this symbol before. This is just Jesus, the Cairo. Okay, great. So we got the beginning of the world, and um, there's sadly a tragic fall, um, and we've been suffering the effects of that ever since. Um, and we can talk about um, uh, briefly, okay, really quickly, um, when God made Adam and Eve, um, and this is actual, um, what we would say is um, we believe that there were orig- an original couple um, from whom descended the entire human race. Uh, now, in this original sin, we have uh, received the effects of that. We've inherited, we'd say, the effects of it, not by us making a personal sin, though all of us have personally sinned. Uh, it's because, uh, what do they say in um, Latin, um, the Roman law? Nemo dat quo non habit. You know, no one can give what one doesn't have. Uh, and so Adam and Eve have lost this grace of perfect integrity, of impassibility and immortality. So those are preternatural gifts um, that, that everything just works right in our life. And there's a real integrity there. Um, and so what happens is when, when we fall, when we actually reject God's love, um, start to grow suspicious. And the way the catechism says it is in Catechism 397. This is a great paragraph. Uh, they let trust in their creator die in their heart so they disobeyed God's command. Of course I'm going to disobey someone I don't trust. I mean, if, if I don't trust them and they're trying to tell me what to do, I'm not going to obey them. And so the trust died in their heart. Then they're like, okay, of, of course I'm going to disobey God's command. Uh, I'm not going to uh, obey someone I don't trust. I don't think he's a good father. So what happens is, as we reject God, this perfect harmony in my relationship with God is broken and the interior life of grace is shattered. I have no grace within me now. And that grace is kind of, maybe we could say, a magnet that holds all of, my, all of the complex life of who I am and my interiority and everything, holds it in perfect tension, in perfect harmony. But when that magnet, we could say, is gone, the life of grace is gone, everything gets unruly and it gets crazy. My mind, I can't really see things uh, as well as I could before. I can't perceive reality as I could before. My, my intellect is darkened, we say. Then my will is weakened. I can't really love in the way that I want. Even St. Paul, he says, I don't know why I do what the, I, I don't do what I want to do. I even do the very things that I hate because something mysteriously is wrong in me. I know that I ought to live this way, but sometimes I just can't. My will is weakened. And then we see that ultimately in a life of addiction, Right? And then lastly, uh, our passions are unruly. They're disordered. And this is, I think this is you know, like our just desserts, right? We're the lower creatures. We rebel against God. And as a part of our punishment is the, our lower faculties, our emotions and our passions start to rebel against us. They don't follow our intellect. I sometimes just find myself stuffing my face full of chocolate cake and I know I, I'm a diabetic, I can't do that. You know, it's like, I don't know why I do that. Like, all of a sudden my passions are just unruly. And we see this too, even like, especially in our culture and time, lust is just such a domineering thing. Our passions just get all crazy. And I know that this isn't good for me, that this isn't going to be helpful for me to live a flourishing life and yet um, I'm just so dominated by them. Okay. My relationship now also with, my, with male and female has definitely been screwed up. 
So what we call the, the original holiness is lost, now original justice. My relationship with God is broken. The justice of integri- integrity and harmony within me, the justice in my relationship of male and female is broken and all screwed up. Now it's dominated by, by lust and power and all this weird stuff. And also now, uh, and so in relationships with one another, and also our relationship with creation. Romans chapter 8 is good on this. Our relationship with creation. And all creation is groaning that we might become the sons and daughters of God. Creation is just saying, please, turn your heart to the Lord and finally, finally, live the, the truth of what your vocation was, which was to subdue and have dominion over creation so that creation can be in perfect harmony with God and have a life. Um, but we're all screwed up. And so these, this original justice... Uh, all these harmonies, the harmony with God, the harmony with myself, the harmony with relations with other people, and the harmony with creation, it's all out of whack now. And that's where suffering ends up coming in. Uh, certainly, there's moral evil, but there's also physical evil. There are two different kinds of evil. Like, say, for example, earthquakes and natural disasters, that's physical evil. Moral evil is the direct consequence of my sin. Um, okay. So there's a big problem here, obviously. And I love the way that Chesterton says it. He's like, basically, um, the, the doctrine of original sin is really uh, the most sure and solid doctrine because it's the most empirically verifiable. <laughs> I mean, it's like when we look at our lives, it's a, kind of a disaster. Um, we, can, we can really viscerally experience it. Okay, so what God does then, if it begins with a lack of trust in the heart, and we disobey God's command, what's the rest of the plan? What's God doing after the fall right here up until Jesus? He's trying to win our trust back. This is his whole goal. And how does he do it? He ends up trying to reveal himself all the more to say, I'm not the bad father that you think I am. And he makes promises, and he keeps them. He makes a covenant with his people, and he proves himself faithful. He ends up uh, doing all these great marvels and miracles and constantly seeking after the heart of Israel. And guess what happens? They keep straying away, and he's the one who seeks them out. He's the one who constantly is looking. He is faithful. So he's trying to win this, this trust back, and he says, okay, basically in the end, and I don't, I don't want to steal Father Brian's thunder here, but um, basically in the end what happens is Jesus on the cross, he says, fine, if you really think that I'm trying to control and manipulate you, if you think I'm trying to keep something from you, I'm going to give you everything that I have. I'm going to give you my son. And I'm going to let you control and manipulate him. And I'm going to let you do with him whatever you think is going to satisfy your thirst for blood or whatever you're looking for in your heart. Do it. Did that satisfy? Do you trust me now? Do you think I'm trying to keep something from you? Do you trust in my goodness? And now God, in his wondrous providence, he actually makes the most terrible, atrocious evil into the very moment of our salvation. Now God is is almighty. This is the one 
divine attribute that we have in the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And yet, so much evil in the world. Is God really Almighty? Unless we see that it's precisely through his weakness that he reveals his power. Now, this is something that the world cannot understand. It can't. And if I can't understand it, then that means, Jesus, you've got to teach me how. What does it mean about poverty and weakness, your poverty and your weakness, that ends up overturning all the different structures of power in the world? It's totally different. I, I, I mean, you remember the gospel from this past weekend, right? Um, when James and John, oh my goodness, the, these guys just can never get it. Uh, so they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus, for the third time, becomes extremely explicit. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed, handed over. I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, scourged, and killed. And what, what, what's James and John do? They come up and say, Jesus, um, will, you, will you do anything we ask of you? Will you just promise us that? <laughs> I mean, it's like me coming home and I just, I just found out I have terminal cancer or something. And you say to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of hungry. Can you make me a sandwich? You know, I mean, it's like these guys just have no capacity to understand what's happening here. And so that what happens is Jesus actually entertains their desire. And, and, uh, and he says, well, okay, Jesus, what we really want is, you know, there's two of us. Grant that when you go into your kingdom and the glory of your kingdom... You're going up to Jerusalem. We know that you're the Messiah. You're the king. Uh, granted, uh, we might sit one at your right and one at your left. Now, the 10, the other 10, they hear him. It's like, oh, you chumps. I can't believe you. you. The audacity to try to sneak in there and try to, you know, get that spot for yourselves. And then Jesus ends up calling them together. And you guys remember this from this past weekend? I don't know, hopefully. Um, he calls them together and he says, you know, you know how the rulers of this world make their authority over, over each other felt. It shall not be so among you. That's not what power and authority is about. Power and authority is actually for the sake of making a gift of oneself. If I have any gift, it's only to be given away. And two quick thoughts on that. The first is octoritas. Octoritas is authority. That's the Latin root for authority. It literally means to give increase. And think about like uh, a parent with a child. You have authority over your children, right? But for what? So that you can tell your kids, hey, you know, uh, we lost the remote. Can you just like stand next to the TV and just, you know, click the channel when I tell you to? No, I mean, that's, that's, or like that they serve you. No, power and authority is actually for a deeper sense of service. This is the way God is. Now, if we think it the other way around, then that means we're infected by a spirit of the world, that we live a life still under concupiscence, and we're still in sin. But authority actually is for the sake of giving increase. Lord, I want to sacrifice my whole life so that other people can find deeper flourishing. That my life, my life is spent entirely in service of the church, just in the, very, and just in the hope that my gift actually brings faith in people's hearts. That they experience a new freedom in their life because they know Jesus Christ. That's the only reason why a priest has authority. Is <laughs> actually to be a, a, a deeper servant. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, the, the Pope, the, the title for the Pope is the Servus Servorum Dei. 
the servant of the servants of God. So he, the Pope is actually at the service of the rest of the church. So he then is actually made lower than everybody else. In fact, I'm lower than you, not higher than you. And the Pope is lower than me because Jesus says, this is how it should be among you. You call me teacher and rightly so, for that's what I am. But I wash your feet as a servant and as a slave. That's what it looks like. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to become the least and the servant of all. That's the way it works. Um, what was the second point I was going to make in that? Uh, I can't remember. Um, anyway. Okay, so, um, so there, basically, the, the entire Old Testament is, is God working, revealing himself, intervening, we could say, in history, um, in order that he might be made known that he truly is a God of steadfast love and mercy, a God who constantly seeks his people. Even when we're unfaithful and run away from him and don't trust him, he's constantly trying to reveal the truth that he is a good father. Oh, you mean like how it's... <laughs> yeah, totally. No, okay, so, so, um, so God, he ends up, um, now this, is, this can be scandalous, actually. Um, God ends up choosing someone. Um, he chooses Abram, and he calls him out of um, Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, and he ends up calling him to a place that he has not shown him. This is Genesis chapter 12. He chooses one, and he says, go to a place that I will show you. And in Genesis chapter 12, um, oh my gosh, there's so much to say here. Um, essentially what he does is he ends up promising the land, promising him descendants, and promising through his descendants a worldwide blessing. Now this is, I think, this is what um, gets people in trouble. Why is it that God chose Abram and Abraham, uh, same guy, uh, why is it chose him and not anybody else? Um, this is the great mystery, is that God chooses us precisely in order to be participators in his plan. That he chooses us not to be a blessing for our own selves, but to actually be a blessing for other people. He chose Abraham, why? So that through him, he might bless the entire world. This is why the scandal of particularity, you ever heard of that? Uh, the scandal of particularity or the fact that God chooses Abram and not anybody else. Why did he choose the chosen people? Quote, chosen people, right? Why did he choose them and not anybody else? Well, because they're supposed to be participators in his plan, to be, to be a light to the nations, to be missionary, to reveal the, the mystery of God's own heart in the world. In a way, I, I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but in a way, God doesn't want to be father. God wants to be grandfather. He wants to see us grow up. I mean, imagine, uh, maybe some of you have had this experience. Imagine the experience of, of uh, a parent watching their children actually become parents for the first time. I mean, that's got to be so extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, I watched my parents do it. 
when my sisters and brother started having children. That they watch their children actually become parents and they start to give and pour themselves out for their own kids. That's what God desires for us. And that's why he chooses Abram to be a blight and blessing to the nations. Okay, so, um, Neely, going back to your question. He chooses, acts, intervenes, reveals himself, speaks specifically to the chosen people. And he chooses them uh, to be a light to the nations. Now, here's the problem. They wanted to be like everybody else. They hated being different. Over and over and over again. Why can't we just be like everybody else? Even to the point of, uh, uh, what is it? Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, oh, mercy. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. They want a king. And Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, he says, no, no, no. Uh, the Lord is our king. And what do they say? Everybody else has a king. We want a king. So Samuel goes to the Lord, what am I supposed to do? These people are just so stiff-necked, they can never really get it. And it's easy to kind of cast the finger, or point the finger at them, and, um, but realize that Israel is us <laughs> all the time. We want to be like all the rest of the nations. Everybody else has a king. We don't trust the Lord enough that he's going to be our king, so we want one. And the Lord says, okay, fine. Give him a king. And this is the great crazy mystery is that God actually uses our, our foolish rejections of him and orients or, and brings them back all, all the way around again uh, according to fulfill, his, or to fulfill his plan. Jesus is the king. That God has found a way to actually bring that back to himself and reveal that. Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the king, right? Um, okay. Um, so, the Old Testament and the development of the Old Testament, um, is this a reliable text? Is this something that, is this what you're getting at? Is this a, the formation of the, the text itself? Is this reliable? How did it come to be? Is that kind of the question ultimately? Okay, so God is, is acting in the world and um, people, the chosen people start to see it and they start to chronicle it, how God is at work. And uh, eventually, uh, we see that in his plan, uh, it's an organic unity. In his plan, uh, he's preparing a way uh, for the Messiah, the one who is to rule and usher in an age of, uh, of uh, a kingdom and, and peace. Um, and that kingdom is the church. Um, and so uh, we can see that even from the very beginning, um, at Kalein, um, so uh, he, he calls Abram out of Ur, out of Babylon, in order to go to the promised land, a land of promise, which is Israel. He calls him out of this. Um, literally, uh, that's what the, the Greek is here. But the reason why I say this is because Ekalein, to call out of, to be called out of the world, is actually to become uh, transformed and sent back into the world. And so, this word in Latin actually is, becomes ecclesia. Have you ever heard of that word? Do you know what that word in English, how we translate that is? Church. 
We're the ones who are called out of the world by God in order to be transformed and transfigured by his blessing to actually become a blessing in the world. The only reason why God has chosen me is so that I might give myself away. If I desire to save myself, save my life, I will lose it. But if I lose my life for his sake, I will find it. Only through a sincere gift of myself do I find myself. Yeah. Keep going. I'm, I'm, so I'm completely off my notes and I have no idea where I'm going. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, the way I, the way I tell that story is, is slightly tongue in cheek, but I, I think it's, it's, it's revelatory about God's plan. Is that first He wants us to know our interior solitude, our original solitude. John Paul II in his theology of the body really fills this out in powerful ways, especially around uh, a real understanding of the communion of persons and what love is and what that looks like. So this original solitude. And he ends up, um, I mean, he's not, he's not foolish. He's not stupid. He's actually so wise that I don't even understand his ways. In Isaiah 55, his thoughts are far beyond my thoughts and his ways far beyond my ways. I never would have chosen the cross. That's ludicrous to me. And yet, that's the only thing, the only thing that satisfies the mystery of evil in the world. That's the only thing. If it weren't for the cross, I would have been a Buddhist long ago. Because that's the closest, I think, that that really gets to, from from a natural point of view, uh, to the problem of evil. But the cross, God answers it and unravels it in such a beautiful way. Now, it might not be totally satisfying if I'm horrified by suffering, but that's precisely the way that he unravels this knot. Okay, so um, another way that we could say it is uh, because we let trust die in our, uh, trust in our creator die in our heart, we disobeyed God's command, and then from that comes all suffering and death itself. Um, that our souls literally died and, and then our bodies follow. All suffering and death come in the wake of sin. Um, how does Jesus work that out? He unties that nasty knot by actually, through faith and trust in his Father's plan, he works it backwards. That's how you untie a knot, right? You've got to work it backwards. So with faith and obedience, not, not distrust and disobedience, but faith and obedience, he actually suffers and dies and works that backwards. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, now, God, uh, he, I will say this, and the catechism is very clear on this. God progressively reveals himself. It's kind of like a dimmer switch, a rheostat. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just reveal himself all of a sudden, boom, uh, transfiguration, here I am, uh, you know. <laughs> um, he, he progressively uh, unveils himself. Until, uh, so, um, in the letter of the Hebrews, in many and varied ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us in the Son. And in that Son is the fullness of God. 
He is the Word. So in many and varied ways in the Old Testament, God is progressively revealing himself more and more like a dimmer switch so that finally when, when the Christ comes, we're able to say, or piece things together through the promises and everything. It's like, oh, this is the ultimate part of his plan is to bring all things into union in Jesus and to be a part of his body. And all of us are called into that intimate relationship where he heals sin from within, he conquers sin and death from within, and now um, we're able to share in his own blessed life because he's assumed our human nature and drawn us now into his own divine nature. So that, that gets back to my original question. You know, to Father Brian talked about free will and to have love, you have to have free will. Do you have to suffer to have love? Like, uh, certainly after the fall, absolutely. Um, suffering is a part of it. We could say there's some speculation about is there suffering in God? We could say it in this sense, in the Godhead in Trinity. We could say in the sense that I've given my whole self away. That the Father has given his whole self to the Son. Um, and in that, there is a certain suffering. Um, That's the only way I can wrap on the Old Testament. Otherwise, I imagine like Adam and Eve fall, this is, I'm weird, Adam and Eve falling from the Garden of Eden, God being all-knowing and all-powerful, Jesus is like, yeah, so you know, that's, that's, that's not it, um, because that's kind of like a, um, a false dichotomy. And that's, sadly, uh, a lot of redemption, uh, atonement theologies out of the Protestant world. That's where they go. But that's not it. It's not like God's wrath all of a sudden is just burning up, and it's got to, I just got to take it out on somebody because I'm so pissed. And then, boom, you, I'm just gonna, and then the sun just takes it for us. It's like... Uh, no, that's not how it works. Um, that actually, the father grieves deeply, and the son grieves deeply at the tragedy of what has happened, and watches his creation destroy itself. In fact, that's what St. Thomas says is the definition of sin, doing that which is contrary to our own good. When we sin, he watches, God watches his creatures destroy themselves doing that which is contrary to our own good. Uh, and so the Father is seeking to creatively... Re I mean, certainly there are consequences to sin. There are. And there's... Um, like as a parent, you, you know that if there's a real risk... Like the other day, I saw um, a little boy run out into the street. And I was with his dad um, and his parents. And, this little and his dad just hollered, just screamed... <laughs> to get out of the street because he was going to get hit by a car. Now, do you see that as an uncharitable act? Or should he have whispered that more gently? No, he's got to get his son out of the street or else he's going to get killed. Now, his son come running back in tears. And, and you know, his, his father was able to articulate, you know, just how much he loves him and all that stuff. And it was really beautiful. But sometimes we can experience the voice of God who's hollering because we're watching, we're walking to an edge of a cliff, and he's saying, don't go, don't take another step. Um, and we can hear his voice um, as, as, as this um, horrifying thunder that just shakes us to the core. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when, when God reveals his name, um, in Exodus chapter 3, then again in Exodus 34, I think that um, uh, 
What's important to see that how God reveals himself. In Exodus 34, um, Moses asks, you know, can I see your face, please? Uh, let me see your glory. And this is, this is how the Lord, he says, you can't see my face, but I will pass by you. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and faithfulness, keeping merciful love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you know what the, the, the most quoted um, passage is in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament? Uh, it's that one. <laughs> because that's who God is. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and faithfulness. This is who God is, to is for Israel. And it isn't this false dichotomy of God, this burning wrath. Now there's justice and it's real, but that justice is requited um, in the way that Jesus unravels the knot. Um, in a way that's so beautiful that he, he wants to be with us in that suffering. And he's truly Emmanuel, God with us in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I certainly know, I certainly know after the fall that love and suffering uh, really go together. Um, is because there's a real painful crucifixion of my self-will when I make, when I'm, I'm not, um, when I'm letting my selfishness and my ego die and I'm starting to live for another. There really is a crucifixion in that. And, I, and you probably have experienced that. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> um, before the fall, I, I think that's, that's pretty speculative, and I just don't know the answer to that. Um, I think in the sense of, of that I'm giving myself away, um, that I'm not holding on to something. I'm, I'm, I'm entrusting myself entirely to another. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, like, before sin, before the fall, what, would you be able to say what love was like for Adam and Eve? Like, if it wasn't um, love until it hurt each other? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that love actually looked like they were naked without shame. I don't know if you've ever heard that scripture verse. Um, they're naked without shame. There's no, the reason why there was an original nakedness is because I don't have to protect anything. And that's why after the fall, they cover themselves with fig leaves because there's something worth protecting. Unlike a lot of Protestants would say, no, um, we're, we're completely depraved and there's nothing worth... There's, no, we see that, no, there's something worth protecting, that I can be exploited and used, I can be lusted after uh, and manipulated. Um, before that happened, if I'm naked without shame, I'm completely free and completely known, or free to be completely known by another, and um, there's, there's no, um, and so when I make a gift of myself to another, there is a certain dying to self in that because I do make a gift completely, I hold on to nothing. There's not any kind of 
uh, selfishness in that act. Um, and that receptivity on, part of the, on the part of the other and the, the uh, reciprocal gift, um, there, there is um, uh, that love is fruitful. Um, so jump, I would really recommend if there's a lot of curiosity in, um, in kind of the original man and what that love could have looked like, I really would recommend jump all the seconds theology of the body and trying to articulate what does love look like. Now, he says, okay, after the fall, there's historical man. This is how do we love uh, being redeemed by Jesus? And then eventually there's eschatological man, which is kind of more to your question, where does celibacy fit in? Um, why, why celibacy? Why, how is that a part of the plan if love is actually so constitutive of what it means to be a human being? Is it love isn't just marital in the fleshly sense. Love can be far more than that. Now, if it's a physical love, it has to be marital. But it can be, love can take its forms uh, in super marital or whatever. Um, just made up that word, sorry. <laughs> Do you mind saying again what that passage was that you were talking about? about Ex- Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Yeah, verse 6 is... Okay, I, how long, are we done? Okay, yeah. Wow, I apologize. Um, okay, well, um, I didn't really talk about most of what I was gonna talk about, but that's okay. Um, great being with you. Um, hopefully this was helpful. I, li- I apologize, I live in a world where, um, I live in the seminary, it's such a weird place. <laughs> And so, um, these aren't a lot of questions that I normally wrestle with. Um, Yeah, um, great. Well, let's just commend this time uh, to the Lord, and especially through the intercession of Our Lady. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you've created us and how you continue to hold us in being at every moment. Lord, you've created us out of nothing, and you hold us into being. Lord, we ask that uh, as you're intimately involved in every aspect of our lives, we might trust you to grow in trust and to trust that uh, the laws that you've um, set in, in nature, um, we might come to understand and live freely in, but especially the laws of our souls, our spiritual life, we might come to know what it means to love and how to love well. Lord, teach us through the cross how to, how to love unto suffering and suffer unto love. As we pray through the intercession of Our Lady, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Yeah, absolutely.